Welcome to the Do Good to Lead Well podcast. If you're passionate about mastering self-leadership, then you're in the right place. I have always been curious about and fascinated by the pursuit of leadership excellence. This is why I pursued my PhD in psychology with a specialization in business, and I've continued to dedicate my career to understanding the science and practice of positive leadership. My name is Craig Dowden, I'm a best-selling author, award-winning keynote speaker, executive coach, and member of the Forbes Coaches Council. Each week, I'll bring you world-class content on the science and practice of positive leadership. Through my conversations with best-selling authors, TED speakers, and top CEOs, you'll be able to leverage their insights and experience so you can maximize your potential and be the leader the world needs you to be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Do Good to Lead Well podcast series. I'm thrilled to have you join us today. I'm really excited about this upcoming conversation. My name is Craig Dowden. I'm the host of the Do Good to Lead Well podcast. I'm an executive coach, keynote speaker, and I'm really passionate about the science and practice of positive leadership. And for those of you who have just joined today, this is your first experience of the live webinar. Welcome. This is going to be a whole lot of fun. I'm very excited to have this conversation. For those of you who are return live attendees and return listeners, welcome back. Love to have you with us. And before we start our conversation today, just a special heartfelt expression of gratitude because of your ongoing support, your feedback, your likes, your comments, your sharing. The Do Good to Lead Well podcast is now ranked in the top 0.5% of podcasts globally in the world in any category. And that cannot happen without your ongoing support and contributions. So feel incredibly privileged. And one of the primary reasons why this podcast has had such an impact and an interest is because of the extraordinary guests that we've been able to welcome. And I'm thrilled to have a dynamic duo today. <laughs> Dr. Janet Patty and Dr. Robin Stern, they're the authors of Emotional Intelligence for School Leaders. Dr. Patty is a pro professor emeritus at the Hunter College School of Education, where her teaching and research concentrate on educational leadership. And Dr. Robin Stern, who's a return guest to the program, is the co-founder and senior advisor to the director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence and a licensed psychoanalyst with 30 years of experience. They are both co-creators of the Star Factor coaching model, which helps educational leaders enhance their emotional intelligence skills. So, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. We could spend almost the entire program talking about the great work that, that you've both done. So, a very warm welcome to the Do Good to Lead Well podcast. Thank you, Craig. It's just delightful to be back here. And congratulations on all of your work and uh, for your ranking in um, the wor in world podcast. How incredible is that? Absolutely. Thank you, Craig. I'm excited about being here and being able to have this chat together. You know, and this is so great. I mean, what I love is, and the book is so important, and I would also argue so timely. And for those of you who are joining live, as always, you can chime in with your questions. You had the chance to talk with two of the leading global experts. So please jump in, ask questions, dive in. It really enriches the conversation. And what I love about the book, again, it's just so applicable in every aspect of our lives. 
And in the opening chapter, you talk about the leader's well-being or our well-being. And so where I'd like to start the conversation is, what is the impact, the stressors that we have, that we experience? What do they have on our well-being? And then also what I think is fascinating about your work as well is the trickle-down effects. So can you talk us through that? Because I think that's so important. Well, you know, I mean, it goes without saying that well-being is something that we're all very concerned about today. And uh, even the Surgeon General has added that that it's important that we really not double down on really improving our well-being. In our field, which is the education field, it's, uh, it's, it's no different. Where we have seen principals, superintendents, uh, everyone at a leadership level just completely burnt out. And the data supports that as well. And I know that I'm speaking for leaders of all type when this happens, especially post-pandemic. So our well-being is talking about our engagement. It's talking about our relationships. It's talking about our levels of happiness and joy. And it's whether we have positive emotions or not. And when you think about that, that's pretty important. And many of us in leadership positions are not faring well. At a time in our world where we are more connected than ever, what Janet brought up about um, the Surgeon General's warning to us is that we are lonelier than ever, that 50% of the adults are reporting being lonely. And when you are not connected to other people, you miss out on a key to resilience. You miss out on the opportunity to have well-being. It's so true that positive relationships are great predictors of happiness, well-being, and even health later in life, even a longer life. So having those relationships is key. And the other really important thing that we know, and, and you know this because you wrote a book about mastering yourself, so we know that emotions matter. And so when you have strong emotions, when you can recognize them and then address them, we say, if you can name it, you can tame it. Then you want in control of what's going on for you in your relationships, what's going on for you in your performance every day. Since we know that emotions matter, if you're not recognizing what's going on, then you don't have the opportunity to, to address it. And emotions matter for our ability to focus, for our ability to make decisions. And leaders are decision makers, if nothing else, right? They're decision makers constantly, one after the other after the other. Relationships and emotions drive our relationships and our physical and mental health. And, and I'll stop there. Something you want to add to that, Janet? No, I was just thinking about the the work-life balance that mm. people talk about and how hard it is to have that. And I think I know, what, what I know is that what we hear from the folks that we work with is that no matter how hard they try, they can't do it all. It's just not, it's just not possible. And on top of that, for example, principals and superintendents in their roles there is always this administrative end that needs to be taken care of. And the real purpose for their job, which is to be there for the employees, for the teachers, for the nurses, for whomever it is that they are taking care, should be taken care of. It just doesn't happen. They, for example, using education again as an example, the classroom where the, the principal wants to be is the last place he sometimes can get to when it is the most important place. That mm -hmm. And we see that show up. And when we do surveys and ask people, how are they feeling? Mm -hmm. People are out of balance. They're spending way too much time 
in unpleasant feelings of low energy and depression and sadness and loneliness and high energy, low pleasant feelings as anger and anxiety. And it's not that we're going to be or should have the goal of being happy all the time, 70% of the time. We want to have our feelings to the right of our tool called the mood meter, 70% of the time where we are feeling content, we are feeling serene, we are feeling connected, or we're feeling excited and happy. Well, and and what I love about what you're sharing, and thank you, I've already got some great comments coming in, is that, and both of you touched on the importance of positive relationships and the, the connection that we have with each other. And it reminds me of the wonderful work of Dr. Robert Waldinger as well, who's leading the Harvard study on happiness. And he was on the program and he was saying the same thing exactly where you are. And I love when, why I was particularly excited about our conversation today is that as you both also pointed out, like emotional intelligence is critical in terms of building our resilience, enhancing our decision-making effectiveness, uh, building relationships with ourselves and with other people. And I'm really excited to dig into that. This is a great question. I'm, I'm glad it came up. Already have an audience question. So Bruce is wondering, sometimes I wondered if emotional intelligence skills can be learned. Like, do you just have it or not? So it sounds like this is something people can grow. Like how, how open can we be to growing our emotional intelligence? Very open is the answer. We At the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, we have three core principles. The first one is that emotions matter. The second is emotions are social, and we're already talking about both. And the third is that emotion, emotional intelligence can be learned and developed at any age. We start the earlier you can start, then the less undoing you have to do of bad habits and, and uh, uh, restrictive ways of dealing with your emotions. And the older you are, the more opportunity you have to bring your experience to bear when you learn about emotional intelligence and you learn that emotions matter. I wish we had Bonnie Brown with us. Bonnie Brown is a leader who we have worked with for many years and she's very emotionally intelligent leader. In fact, she would ask people how they felt before they even walked into her door as a superintendent. But Bonnie taught emotional intelligence to elder care facilities mm-hmm. in Florida several years ago. And she said she had great results, meaning that people loved it. Absolutely. And I, and I think the chance or the opportunity that we now know about neuroplasticity and we know that the brain can continue, the prefrontal lobes can continue to stretch themselves and we can learn new things. And even at our right uh, young age, it's really possible to do. And uh, so that's a big aha in terms of answering Bruce's question because we, we can. And yes, there are strategies, just as Robert was referring to, that we use to be able to help that to happen. Well, and I really appreciate in both of your answers, and again, getting so many positive comments here, and I'm already queued up with another question. So this is great. That's why as I was saying, I was looking forward to this, is I love how you frame it where some people say, you know, we'll rely on the expression of you can't teach an old dog new tricks kind of thing. And I love how we're, how you're both reframing that and saying, actually, this is not a limitation. This is an enhancement whereby our lived experience can inform how we show up and how we build those skills. So I've got another question uh, from Sarah, who's wondering, are there certain emotional intelligence skills that are easier to learn than others? That is a great question. Thank you, Sarah, for that question. But it depends. We all already 
they have an emotional intelligence profile. So we think about the skills of emotional intelligence as recognizing, understanding, labeling, expressing, and regulating. We can all do that. Otherwise, we probably would be home in bed all the time, not really engaging in the world. But some of us come more easily to those skills. Some of it is hardwired and some of it is learned. We learn it in relationships, as a matter of fact. We learn it by people modeling emotions for us. We learn it by people answering our questions about emotions and either showing curiosity or being judgmental, pushing us to shut down our emotions. And we learn it by whether or not emotions even have a seat at the table. So if people are talking about emotions, you may learn more quickly as a young child and as a grown-up with influences from the world at those dinner tables how to recognize emotions in yourself and others. If people are talking about emotions, Janet and I met each other talking about emotions in our families, I don't know, 25 years ago <laughs> over a glass of wine I don't mind sharing. And absolutely. we spent a lot of time unpacking the understanding or our understanding of how we came to certain emotions that we were having as, as young girls and as women. And then labeling emotions, well, that's pretty easy to do. You can just increase your vocabulary one emotion at a time every week. Do it. We have an app for that. You can look it up. And I think the harder skills for all of us are expressing and regulating, which is how emotional intelligence shows up in the world. Internal skillfulness, recognizing, understanding, labeling is something others don't see, but how you express and regulate, that's how people see you. And for leaders, a stressed out leader means a stressed out school. <laughs> leader in a meeting means a stressed out meeting. Pam and I would just add to that, that foundational to all of this work is really how self-aware we become, mm. how self-aware we are, and that you know, recognizing and identifying and understanding all of that is adding to as we stretch with those, as we work with those skills that you talked about, Robert. And I would say that the more self-aware we can become again, and there are techniques that we are using today. We are all aware of mindfulness and other things of that sort. We'll talk about, I'm sure, as we go further, but that self-awareness is key because if someone's not aware of what's happening for them, of what they feel, of, then how are they going to regulate? How are they going to be able to be there for someone if they need to be and so on? And again, I love this because of the curiosity, like how important it is to be innately curious in terms of our own building, our own emotional intelligence. And, and again, applying that, I, I love that insight in terms of, okay, how do we show up? I've got, and I, I'm smiling, Janet, cause I didn't know, did you read the next question? Cause <laughs> Allison, no, because and I know you can't. So it's funny because Allison was wondering, what, if any, link is there between mindfulness and emotional intelligence? And there's a big connection, as we know. Mindfulness has certainly become a technique, a strategy, a way of life for people today for, for, no, uh, for no uncertain reason. It's because it helps to actually retrain the brain. It helps us to slow down, watch our breath, listen to our breath and to center ourselves to become more self-aware. And so mindfulness is a very critical aspect. We're learning a lot about it in education. In fact, it's an interesting point is the chancellor of New York City Schools <clears throat> announced uh, not too long ago that he would like to see mindfulness in every classroom. And I, we thought, oh my goodness, that is so fantastic. 
I wish I had it when I was a young child. So yes, mindfulness is a critical part of the development that we are, are using. In specific, and I'll, I'll just add uh, this to what you said. Thank you. And thank you for that question. We have a tool that we use to prolong the space and time between when we are triggered and when we respond. And we call that the, the meta moment. And we talk about um, calling to mind our best self during that time. But even before you can call to mind your best self, got to take a pause. In that mindful moment, find that you, you want other people to see. From that vantage point, you can choose an action. So, so many of us are, are just on automatic and the pressure that we live every day to go from one thing to the, another, to the next, to the Zoom screen, to the in-person meeting, to the paper in front of you, to your family, it, it's just overwhelming. And so we don't have enough of that pause. I mean, and more, you know, there's more to say about that, but take it away. Go ahead, Greg. No, I was going to say what I, I love about what both of you are sharing. Again, it's kind of slowing that down a little bit. And sometimes people think, well, there has to be this massive investment like of time when you're saying how quick life progresses uh, in our personal and professional lives. And then it's like just slowing down. It can take a moment. I love how each of you are talking about like taking that moment and then also imagining like your best self or how you choose to show up in these situations. It's so powerful for the people around us and also so empowering for us, which is why I love the work that both of you are doing. And I'm thrilled that the book is out, you know, because it does, it really gives us those skills. And I've got another one. This is just so funny. It's just questions continue to come in. So Trevor was, was wondering, like, I kind of struggle with mindfulness. I find it difficult. Are there any tips or tricks that I can, that you can help me open my mind more to, to, to this practice? I would say to Trevor, thank you. I'm wondering whether you, the trouble you're having with mindfulness is that is the word mindfulness, it doesn't seem like something you ought to be doing, or is it in the practice itself? Many years ago, Janet and I both taught in the uh, Summer Principals Academy in New York City, training aspiring urban leaders. And one of the things that the feedback we got early on in putting the Principals Academy together was that we had to be very careful of the way we labeled things because people might think it was religious. And so we began to think about those mindful moments and meditations that we taught. And we did teach many different kinds of men meditation and mindfulness activities. We called them self-awareness training. And so if you think about training your attention or training, helping you with focus or training your self-awareness, maybe it has a different ring for you. And then the other thing is, I know when I first began to do mindfulness or mindfulness activities, I couldn't do the mantra. It just didn't work for me. I, and I couldn't, I had trouble with clearing my mind. I guess if I had stayed with that and persisted and practiced, it would have been fine. But instead, I tried a meditation mindfulness activity that was about noticing. And I believe that Dan Goldman taught it. I don't remember what webinar it was, or maybe they didn't even have webinars then, but it was a noticing of what was happening. So as you were breathing in and out, and let's say you your foot was itchy, you would say sensation, and then you'd come back to your breath. And then maybe you had a thought, oh, I'm meeting Janet for lunch today. 
and you would say thought, and then you'd come back to your breath. And I found that to be very helpful and very usable, very user-friendly. And the other thing, the other meditation mindfulness that I do is Sharon Salzberg's meta meditation, which is about loving kindness. And we can always get behind sending compassion to ourselves and compassion to other people. And you can read about that online. You can read about that in Sharon Salzberg's book, Loving Kindness. So I would recommend something that works for you. Thich Nhat Hanh, um, has a, a, a very simple in-out, deep, slow kind of mindfulness moment. And Janet, what can you... Oh, I think you just gave a wonderful series of ways in which Trevor and others can really work with it. I think the breathing is the breathing takes time to to get used to following that breath and letting that breath direct us. There are and I love the little techniques, you know, the small things. I was just reading one not too long ago from uh, another Yolanda, I think her first name was. She had created this little thing called rain, and I thought, hmm, what is that? And I, it actually says first thing you want to do is recognize right what's going on for you. The second thing you want to do is just allow things to be the way they are. You know, don't try to change anything. Don't try to do anything. As you're doing that, then go into the I, which is to investigate what's happening for you in that moment. And then in the last part, which is practice, you just non-identification. So at the N word is, I'm not going to identify with anything particularly. I'm not going to identify with I can't do it. I can. So you're just letting yourself be. Mm-hmm. And she said, when you're upset, that's a really good one to use. So I love that. I'm going to try it out. It's new for me. Thank you for that and for stepping us through it like that, Janet. It was beautiful, really. You know, I'm glad. Uh, you certainly gave a lot on this. And I think I'm glad the question was asked. Mm-hmm. No, and thank you. And thank you both. And I've got so Trevor right away said, thank you. That really has helped shift my perspective on this. And I'm excited to try out the different things you've shared and the rain technique. And and I'm thrilled that it was, it was asked as well, because I do feel like sometimes that is a bit of a barrier, right? Because even if we know a practice or we sense a practice can be quite beneficial, there can be barriers that we put up in our way that can prevent exploration. And one of the things I love and again, that's why I, I just feel so fortunate to have these conversations. And again, that common thread, the eye and rain is investigate curiosity. It's just such a really powerful skill in, in life and in leadership. Uh, I just think it's, it's, it's so important. We've got another question. They just keep coming in. <laughs> just right. well, Charlie was wondering, when it comes to navigating conflict, are there certain emotionally intelligent approaches to navigating conflict more effectively? The assumption is yes, would love to hear your expert opinion. Well, I'll let Janet, the expert, talk about conflict. Yeah, I've been working on it my whole life. <laughs> so the first thing I want to say, though, is for leaders in particular, conflict is, it's a, for all of us, it's inevitable. But for leaders in particular, it's, it's a major social, relationship-oriented skill that we need to have. And most people are afraid of it in some way or another. I would say that people will tend to avoid or aggressive, be aggressive. It tends to, the approach of conflict is the problem. It's not the conflict, because what we know is conflict is as a natural, normal way of life. It's how we address it. And the more we learn how to use strategies to deal with it, the less frightening it becomes. 
the more able we are to confront conflict and shift the way we deal with it. You know, we learn ways of how to deal with conflict when we're very young. We watch the adults in our lives, the people who parented us, the school teachers, the counselors, the, the folks at church, uh, wherever it is that we might be, there's conflict. And from that, we form our own style and leadership of conflict leadership. And so imagine coming into a job as a leader and you can't handle conflict. It's something that I always say when I was teaching my students at the university, I would say, if you can't handle conflict, if you can't look into yourself in the mirror and know that you need to do some work on how you handle conflict, then don't go ahead trying to be a leader because mm -hmm. it, it's not going to happen for you. Robin, anything to add? I did, I did have something that I wanted to add about boundaries that uh, one of the I like about conflict, and I say and do say I like it, is that it helps you establish boundaries. Sometimes you don't know where you start and stop until your boundaries are violated. And yeah. so it's a really good opportunity just in, without boundaries being violated, just to know where they are. Wait a minute, I didn't like that. You know, yeah. or wait, you did that thing and it doesn't work for me. You know, and maybe it worked for the other person. And maybe you're going to fight about it. But it allows you to come in contact with your own values and your, your own boundaries. Mm. And I also the, the way that self-awareness plays into and supports conflict resolution is remarkably important. And mindfulness as well, right? Mm. And if you can take those mindful moments, for example before you go into a conversation that you know is going to be conflict-ridden. If you can take a mindful moment, if you can be aware of where you are, even in the middle of that conflict, you're way ahead of the game because then you get to choose the language you use. Then you are in control of what's coming out of your mouth rather than um, your emotions being in control of you. So their conflict resolution is emotional intelligence in action when done well. Yes, absolutely. And when you call that at Yale in the program, you call it a proactive meta moment, what you were just describing. Yeah. Meta moment is I have my hand on the doorknob and I'm thinking, okay, so I've been away for three days and much as I love my husband, maybe the kitchen is a bit of me a mess because he had peanut butter on the rye bread that he loves to have and he left the peanut butter knife on the, uh, the counter, even though he knows I hate the peanut butter knife on the counter. So <laughs> I, knowing that, I'm going to take a deep breath and remember how much I love him and remember that he was alone all weekend. I'm going to leave with compassion. Well, I love that. And uh, I'll raise my hand. I also, I love peanut butter on rye red too. So <laughs> I, I have to put that out there just as a, and, and I just, so, so many great comments here. Someone just wrote my favorite. This is a masterclass in, in conflict. Thank you. So many great insights. Another comment saying, which I also agree, Janet, love how it's not conflict. That's the problem. It's the approach that we take to it. And I think that's so powerful because again, Growing up, as you've talked about, both talked about before, the lessons you learn, what you think about a particular, you know, what that means, what that represents. I love that focus on on strategies, and it's it sparked a bunch of follow up questions, by the way. And then also, and Robin, your point about boundaries as well, it gives us a chance to explore what our boundaries are. I think that's 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 so so powerful. Sorry, was one of you going to say? 
I was stepping on your words and I apologize, but I wanted to say that in one of the workshops Janet and I did years ago on conflict resolution, we asked people before the workshop started just to free write the top 10 words that came to their mind when they heard the word conflict and when they conflict resolution. And I invite everyone who's listening to do that because as Janet said, it's your approach. If you go in scared, Maybe you could reframe that now, having listened to our conversation. Well, and again, and I love the, and this is a beautiful extension. And again, thank you, comments. Thank you for the tips. Thank you for the exercises. It also uh, brings me back to a point that you made earlier about the power of labels, because if we're labeling conflict with negative associations, conflict could be an opportunity. We have differences of opinion on something. Now we may be able to co-create something that's even more awesome and brings us closer together as opposed to creating distance. I love, I love this uh, exercise. I've got a follow-up. This is a question which I'm not surprised about. David was asking, really appreciate the observation about boundaries. So how can I learn to set reasonable boundaries. Like I struggle with understanding what's reasonable. I'd love to hear each of your thoughts on this. That is such a great question. I, to reasonable to who? (laughs) (laughs) Who who has to decide whether they're reasonable? Because in any conflict, if you ask each person what was reasonable, they probably would have a different answer. I think when people are exploring with each other where where your boundaries are or and they're pushing on another's boundary, and let me say, think about how best to say this. There's learning going on in the moment. Learning going on in the moment. You're approaching someone and you are watching their facial expression and you are seeing their body language. And you know maybe that you push too far and even maybe... Just to to go back to the word reasonable, maybe you think you're being reasonable, but if that being reasonable isn't working in the moment, it doesn't matter what's reasonable. It ultimately matters how you feel first. And so I would get underneath that. And you can't have a conversation when things are so heated. And whether and if you're looking to find out who's reasonable and who's not, I wish my husband were here to hear this conversation. <laughs> Maybe asking the, a tough question in the wrong order, though. An important question, but maybe it's in the wrong order. And boundaries are so important. That, and so I, I mind processing myself. And I think one thing for me is to the non-negotiables. That, you know, if you, if you really spend some time with yourself and you, you, you have a tendency to talk with yourself, you know, our self-talk, we do talk to ourselves all the time. And you listen to that, you can, and you allow yourself to feel and get under, as Robin is saying, then I think you'll come to the non-negotiables. And those non-negotiables are boundaries. They have, you have to put little fences around them. So, well, big ones. I agree. And it reminds me of my work in gaslighting, because at some point in those interactions, you're thinking to yourself, I hope, or I certainly recommend that people be thinking to themselves, is this going to work for me? Right. Be good enough. And maybe that's what we mean by reasonable. Is it reasonable for me? Can I, can I live with this? Maybe I didn't like it to begin with, but is it going to work? And sometimes the answer to that is yes. And sometimes the answer is no. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's about loving yourself, right? Uh, loving 
And I love myself enough to put up a boundary here where I know I could get hurt if I don't. No, and again, lots of fantastic comments coming through. Thank you. Thank you. Just loving the the practical insights on this and valuable takeaways. So um, lots of people are, are, are chiming in. We've got a question back to which is interesting. So Tina was saying, really appreciated the observations around conflict and a, around some of people avoid it. So I have someone in my life that avoids conflict or difficult conversations. Any strategies to to make that a more inviting or easier conversation? I think the first thing that comes to my mind is in any relationship, now this is kind of along the lines of boundaries, but it's a little different. We, we need to develop norms of being, how we're going to live together. And when we can do that, then we can start talking about things a little bit more. I mean, the first place she, she, he needs to be able to be willing to talk about it. So that's, I think, where I would start is by creating that safe space so that both parties know and somebody who's avoiding is not going to turn around immediately and say, yeah, well, you're right and blah, 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 blah. No, somebody who's avoiding may have pain around something. Mm -hmm. Somebody who's avoiding may have had rough circumstances before. And some, and it could be that it's just as simple as it's hard for them. They're embarrassed. You know, it just depends. So you need to kind of find out and to dig into a little bit of what's going on for the other person. Avoiding can be changed, but mm -hmm. only if the person recognizes that that avoiding is making them lose out in some way. And that's I, where I would go. I definitely agree with that, that having difficult conversations is an opportunity to get closer to people. It's yeah, yes. better. Um, as hard as they are, absolutely, Robin. But you, people feel immediately better when they avoid it, right? If they're scared of it. So it, it's kind of a reinforcing cycle. Well, I feel better, so maybe I don't have to deal with it. One thing that I would think about doing in addition to what you said, Janet, is to have a conversation about having these conversations. We're going to have to have some difficult conversations as time goes on, or I've been thinking about a few things I want to bring up, and I think it's going to be difficult. And then norms. Here's what I'm going to need to feel safe. I'm going to, I'm going to need for you to say that you're not going to yell at me. What do you need for me to feel safe? Or we're not going to bring in my kids or my brother or all the relatives to feel safe. And I think being an emotion scientist, as we would say, being curious, really being a good listener, having empathy for the person as you're listening, letting them know you understand what they're saying. Even if you may disagree, can you understand? You may see it differently. And not starting out as wanting to be the fixer or the, or the knower. Well, I know this, or why did this? And you know, that's, that's the wrong way to approach it. Or here's what you should do. Sometimes you just really need to listen. Sometimes in listening is that's the basis for repair. No, I love that. And I think it's such a, an important point uh, that both of you, that both of you yeah. are raising. And I also appreciate kind of, you know, that emotional scientist I had a conversation the other day around emotions or data points. So, you know, and they're there to be interpreted and they give you insight into your inner world. And so I just, I absolutely love that. And also that conversation around, because I think it's fascinating for me that in our personal relationships, our professional relationships, how often do we sit down with the other person and say, 
hey, so how are we going to navigate these conversations together? And I love what both of you are sharing around that. Reminds me of some work that I do in my professional world where team charters, like building out expectations of this is how we're going to treat each other. Like Robin, you just shared, like, well, I'm not going to yell or, and then someone else, well, what do you need? And it's so interesting how as human beings, despite the complexity of communication, we kind of just roll over this initial framework of how we're going to relate to one another. I'm curious about your thoughts on that. But I want to just add, you just um, brought something to mind for me. So thank you. That difficult conversations have such a bad reputation. And um, they're like the reputation of conflict. When actually there, if you can reframe just in your own mind, this is a conversation with somebody who I love. This is a conversation with my friend. I mean, there have been times where Janet and I have said, I have to give you an I message today. You know, I didn't like it when. And we trust each other enough. We've known each other enough. We know what our triggers are. And we are, we trust, I trust always that if I say something that offends Janet, she will tell me. And that's a big deal too. You know, going into those difficult conversations, do you trust? Yes. The other person to be able to come to you with their, their feelings if you step on their toes. And if you don't trust, can you ask that question? Can you say, listen, I, I want to have this conversation, but I'm going to want you to tell me how it lands on you because I may intend it one way. It may land on you in a different way. So please, can we have that agreement? I love that, Robin. That just I wanted a thought triggered that I'd like to share, and that is going back to leadership. If that trust is not built in the organization, then how are you going to be able to help people grow? It's mm -hmm. it's just the number one. I just want to take it a little bit more uh, globally in that so many leaders lack that piece. They try to move people and they wonder why those people aren't going to move. Well, what would you move if you don't trust somebody? It just doesn't make sense. Thank you for bringing it back to leadership. Absolutely. There's no there's nowhere to go in developing people. If you can't trust, if you're a leader that doesn't act in a trustworthy way, if you're a leader who doesn't share your own vulnerabilities. And that's really important because then there's no consistency. There's no confidence in you. So they, we, we could talk about this till the sun comes up another day. <laughs> well, and each of you have had an ability to kind of predict what the next question is, because Kim was saying, I'm an executive and I love how you're focusing on self-awareness. How can I ensure that I'm self-aware? <laughs> what are some steps I can take? Well, the first thing I'm going to say is most of us aren't. <laughs> yeah, <from part. laughs> we right. think we are. Absolutely. We, you know, we think we are, but it's really hard to truly know yourself. I mean, I think I'm very self-aware and like, somebody else might tell me, yeah, well, you never noticed what you did the other day and blah, 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 blah. We can improve our self-awareness, right? And we can do things and things like journal writing and mindfulness and therapy and coaching and all of those, those activities that we take into our yoga and that allow us to spend time with our inner selves. Ditto, ditto, ditto. And also I would suggest using a tool where, you, like, for example, the How We Feel app, where you check in with your emotions. And you begin to build the skill of not only saying, okay, right now I am feeling kind of down, but I don't really know why. And then you ask yourself, importantly, 
well, where did, what, who was I just talking to? What did I just do? What have I just been thinking about? So you begin to make the connection between understanding your emotion and something that just happened to you. Emotions, yes, they come unbidden, but they are responses to something that's happening inside of you or outside of you. So you have an emotion and it comes from somewhere and then you can label it when you build your vocabulary, which also an app can help you do. And then when you begin to make the link between understanding and labeling, you're also beginning to be more nuanced and granular with understanding your feelings and expressing them. If I say to Janet, I'm upset. She knows I have big feelings, but it's not that helpful. If I say to her, Janet, I'm really, I'm really disappointed. That's yeah. information. That's the data you were talking about, Craig. No, I love that. And I've got another question. This is great. As I, I've, I had a list of questions and this is fantastic. I was expecting the, you know, audience engagement to be very high. So Chad uh, said, I routinely ask my team for feedback and I often will get, it's fine. It's good. It's so I, and I just, I'm, I feel like I've kind of hit a wall. Any tips around how I can uh, deepen that conversation? Cause I'm genuinely interested. So yes, I, I if I could start this one um, again, Chad. I'm assuming you're the the leader, and you're talking about your followers, so to speak. Well, the first thing is, would you go and tell the leader something to to their face and risk that would be safe for you? I mean, that's the first question I would ask. Is that we, you know, it's very hard to give senior folks feedback unless they ask for it. So you're going to get those kinds of responses if they're just off the cuff. But if you really want to, we use assessments. I, I mean, it is really very helpful to use. We use a, a number of assessments that help us get in there. And, and there's a, more of a safety in, in using something that we, I can say something that I know I, I'm asked to say something that my, my words are going to be heard and they're not going to be seen as an attack. So that, that's the first piece that I would share. Robin, do you have anything you want to add? I agree with that because people, when they're asked to give leaders feedback, are afraid of retaliation or yeah. they, uh, they're going to give feedback. The leader's not going to like it. The leader may be unaware of the fact that the next day he's yelling at you because of the feedback you gave that day. But I do think there are ways to get feedback, as Janet's saying, through the assessments we use, but also for designing short assessments to get at the information you want to know. So for example, to be thinking about with your team, your leadership team, or your coach, or people you trust uh, at your level, questions like, do you feel comfortable expressing your opinions? Do you feel that the things you ask for are supported? Do you feel that leadership, if you're the only one in leadership, then it's on you every time the person answers. So that might be more difficult. But if you do have leadership, uh, more than one person in a distributed leadership, asking questions about how about that try to get at the impact of your behavior and how people see you as a leader. We've done studies that reveal that when people feel they're working for emotionally intelligent leaders based on what they see of their behavior, then they feel safer, they feel more able to voice conflict, they feel more able to speak up and, and so on and be creative. So if you are looking to get at that information, there's a way to ask it that is not 
basically uh, an evaluation of the person, but rather some feedback, genuine feedback about the way they're coming across to you. What do you think about that, Janet? I like that a lot. And I think that you know, it's, it gives the nuances a little bit, the way you were explaining it, how to, how to move with it and mm-hmm. how you can. And I think that, uh, and you're making me think also that small exercises in like in your meeting, you, uh, you may want to start to create uh, a vulnerability, a safety by doing small things like before we begin today's meeting, you know, we're going to share a delicious food that I had ate in the last month and that I just had never had before. You know, you come up with a, and you just start with a very kind of non-consequential thing and then work yourself closer and closer to feelings. And mm-hmm. the more you get there, you're, you're starting to build that safety. And then maybe, just maybe, you will have your folks be willing to take a little bit of a risk to answer a question that you ask. That's not too difficult to answer. Oh, that's awesome. And again, lots of great comments talking about how valuable this is. Love the questions. Love the practices. Thank you. Thank you. Very, very helpful. Got another question <laughs> from, from Linda, who is a fairly senior executive in a large organization and has had the experience of people on their team that are lower in self-awareness and people up the chain, lower in self-awareness. Love how we're talking about self-awareness. Any tips around how do you communicate more effectively with low self-aware individuals? First, you take a big, deep breath. Get your rosary beads or whatever it is that you use. <laughs> you know, we've had, we've, we've seen this. Uh, we've, we've coached people that are in this place. And it's just flow moving. Again, you're taking small steps at a time because you can't force somebody to become self-aware. That's just not going to happen. At the same time, you're pulling your hair out because he or she just doesn't get it. It's like we do like a teaching. You have a brand new teacher. You have to guide them more. You have to give them the steps that they need to do to teach that lesson. You need to be more present and around them and, and spoon feed in certain ways. Whereas if you're really experienced, uh, you're lucky if I come by to see you once in a month. And most people who experience get annoyed because nobody cares to look at them. And, and they want attention too. But self-aware peeps, people who are not self-aware, it, it's you've got to build that. Try to build ways in which, again, you can get him or her to or to look at themselves in a way where they probably don't. Ask questions, open-ended questions. Use a lot of them that force the reflection in the person. Robin? Well, I would probably start with a movie night. Something like it's an offsite and we are or a Thursday night. We're all working late and we're going to watch <laughs> X movie and we're going to stop action. And we're going to talk about what that person, could that person have used some self-awareness? What were they, could they have seen? What would have happened had they had a different kind of moment in there rather than just barreling ahead? What do you think they're feeling? Let's hear what they were feeling, things like that. We used to teach with movies all the time. And and we've kind of fallen away from that because we are on Zoom so much and we don't rather than just standing up and then having the movie screen. I, I just think that movies, and in particular, getting it off center. So you're not starting out with, well, what are you feeling? And let me be curious about that. But then 
you end up in those dyads, perhaps in the audience, where you turn to the person next to you and ask those questions that would uncover some motivation. And I would focus less initially on feelings and more about behavior. And I frame it also like, what do you think they thought when they heard that? You'll be aware of perhaps what you were thinking when you said that. So maybe a little bit backwards. I'd play around with it. Well, and, and this is great. And again, and I've got a few comments and, oh, this is awesome. Now I have permission for movie night. So uh, <laughs> really uh, excited to to get this uh, organized. We're, we're, I can't believe how fast the time has fallen. We're less than 10 minutes left. Uh, I do have another terrific question um, from Aaron, who said, really appreciated the commentary at the beginning about the linkage between emotional intelligence and personal resiliency. What is your, each of your experiences in terms of can emotional intelligence in a leader impact their team more broadly? I love team development work and working with teams. It can be a lot of fun and it could be hard. And I think that the more, well, not I think, I know that the more emotionally intelligent team members are, the more, more smoothly you can get through the change process that the team wants to go through or needs to go through. And it requires, again, setting those norms. It's big in team in teamwork. So that if you have a team that uses emotional intelligence and uses the strategies we've been talking about here today, then, again, you're not going to have as many blocks as you may get if you do not. So that would be my, my first thing, my answer to your question, which is yes, uh, emotional intelligence is a critical factor for teamwork or team development. I, I was thinking more specifically about some of our school leaders, and I'm sure many business leaders as well, through the pandemic, mm. of their own skillfulness help people to move through not only the change process when they were moving from instruction in front of the room to instruction online and maybe in front of the room in the second phase, and how what they did to create resilience for themselves or to enhance their own resilience, but also to keep that flexibility mindset, which is key for resilience, and also to keep those social relationships really continuing to feed the good stuff to each other during those times. And I mean, Principal Dawn, Principal Brooke, I mean, so many people, Fran, Kevin, I mean, there were just so many people, everyone we wrote about really has modeled emotional intelligence and many talk deeply about what it took for them to, based on their self-awareness and their own skillfulness, to to rise to the occasion to lead their teams and to shepherd everyone moving through the process of uncertainty and and unpredictability through the last few years. What I was thinking also about some of the work that we learned from Goldman and uh, his motivation is talking about motivation as a critical piece of EI, talking about empathy, right, and, as a critical piece of EI. So aside from the other things we've spoken about, and that empathy is, is so big. It's so huge and uh, so important for teams as well. And I worked with teams who honestly who didn't have empathy for one another. And that's tough. So mm. you, you really want to, to build that and that empathy will build resilience for the, the team, the whole, because if individuals have it and they bring it together into the group identity, then you've got a real shot at moving your team forward. 
What a beautiful note to end on, empathy. Absolutely. Well, and it's interesting that I'm going to share this because it just came in. Uh, Claire said, I'm loving this conversation today so much. And I had a high empathy, high EQ leader. And the impact that that had on me and the rest of the team during the pandemic was extraordinary. I felt heard. I felt connected despite wherever we were. So, and thank you both for sharing your insights. So I, I just thank you, Claire. Uh, it's an awesome personal story and exactly supports the fantastic work that both of you are doing. And we are, I, I'm just looking at, I'm looking at the time going, how is it possibly an hour? And it is, uh, which is great. And thank you. I know your time is, uh, incredibly in demand. Uh, so thank you. Any final words? I'd love to hear from each of you in terms of anything either that we didn't cover today that you'd love to leave people with or uh, a point that we discussed that you'd like to emphasize. So um, yeah, I would love to to hear any final words from from each of you. Maybe Janet, I'll, I'll start with you. I mean, I think one thing that Robin and I think a lot about is, is really the big picture of, of where we are in our humanity. And we're we're just not really a lot of, not nice to one another. We don't play well in the sandbox, and it's getting worse in many ways. So these skills that we're talking about, we're hoping they're going to shift that and they're going to turn that back into kindness and compassion and concern for one another. I would just echo that, and I would say that that not only is this the hope for humanity, but I think about my children who were in their 30s, and Janet's daughter, who is almost entering adulthood at, at 18, right? And what is their future? And worrying about their future and hoping that this work gets taken up in a way where as they enter and continue on in adulthood, they're living in a world where people care about their emotions, where they become leaders who care about other people's emotions and demonstrate that every day and give people the permission to feel and give people the skillful, the skills that they need to negotiate their lives with well-being. Well, and thank you both. This has just been an awesome conversation. Uh, it's been an inspiring conversation. I got so many comments, like awesome, so inspiring, so helpful. And I appreciate above and beyond the timeliness of the book. And I'd encourage everybody to check it out because as you can see, just through our conversation today, just jam-packed with tangible insights as opposed, you know, like a lot of times we can talk about ideas, concepts, labels, and that's okay. How do we translate? And as you can see here, both Janet and Robin are extraordinary global experts and have dedicated their careers, their lives to building, teaching us how to build these vital skills in our personal and professional lives. And so, and that's what I love. I just want to applaud and just, it's just such a joy to have this conversation with you. I've been energized throughout the impact that you've had on the audience, the live audience today. And I know the listeners are going to feel that energy as well. And just really appreciate the genuine passion that you have in terms of the importance of these skills and for us to, to apply them. So thank you so much to everybody for tuning in. Your questions were amazing today. Thank you, Janet. Thank you, Robin, for taking time out of your incredibly hectic schedules to be here. And until next time on the Do Good to Lead Well webinar and podcast series, Craig Dowden, thanks so much for joining us today. Take care, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me here today on Do Good to Lead Well. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can follow me on Twitter at Craig Dowden or reach out via LinkedIn 
or email info at craigdowden.com. I look forward to meeting you here next week for another transformational episode.